Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and indeed, good Friday and happy Passover to each and every one of you there. This is Joe Wiegand. I'm coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, uh, the gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and the place where Theodore Roosevelt said the romance of his life began. Uh, for me, this quiet Good Friday morning, the romance has been watching the mule deer as they graze across the street on the uh, greening grass of Point to Point Park, one of the newest family attractions in Medora, and it will be nice this summer to see the families, all of us together, playing out in uh, the park name for one of Theodore Roosevelt's favorite activities with his family at Sagamore Hill and with the uh, cabinet members and officers and friends uh, through Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., going from point A to point B, and when coming to an obstacle, never going uh, uh, around, but always in, uh, over, under, or through. More stories to come ahead. Today, a very special day, in addition to the uh, religious calendars. Uh, it's also April 10th, and that's the anniversary of one of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, most important speeches, uh, something that really uh, sets the foundation for his future uh, uh, years in public service as well. When he speaks in Chicago uh, on April 10th, 1899, he does so as the governor of New York. Let's roll the clock back one year to April 10th, 1897. At that point, Theodore Roosevelt is serving as the assistant secretary uh, to the United States Navy. Secretary John Long of Massachusetts, the secretary, but when he's away from the office, Theodore Roosevelt is known as the warm weather secretary, the acting secretary in the pilot house of the Navy, something I think he excelled at greatly and that we can study in future remarks. Uh, on the following day, April 11th, uh, 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 I'm sorry, let's go back to uh, uh, the year before April 10th, 1898, uh, when he's serving as uh, assistant Secretary of the Navy. So the following day, April 11th, 1898, President McKinley and Congress declare war uh, with Spain over Cuba. Let's run uh, Theodore Roosevelt then through uh, April 1898 to April 1899. Uh, in May, 
Theodore Roosevelt, May 1898, Theodore Roosevelt resigns his position in the United States Navy to take his commission as Lieutenant Colonel in the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry, the Rough Riders. Uh, under the uh, leadership of Colonel Leonard Wood, his friend, someone whom Theodore Roosevelt asked the War Department to appoint in command of the regiment rather than himself, uh, they train in San Antonio, Texas in that month of May, transport to Tampa, Florida, and on uh, in June, hit uh, the beaches at Daiquiri uh, in, on the south side of uh, Cuba. July, Theodore Roosevelt is now leading the regiment. July 1st, 1898, in the charge up Kettle Hill in the San Juan Heights, just outside of the city of Santiago de Cuba. In August, the victorious regiment and other soldiers are brought back to quarantine at Montauk Point, Long Island, uh, Camp Wyckoff, a uh, name for a, uh, uh, an American soldier killed in Cuba. In September, Theodore Roosevelt accepts the nomination for the gubernatorial candidacy, the Republican nomination that fall. And uh, in October, on the 27th of that month, 1898, he celebrates his 40th birthday. Uh, the following month, November, he is elected in a close election with over 1.3 million ballots cast. He defeats the Democrat from uh, New, New York, uh, uh, August Van Wyck, uh, by some 16,000 votes, just over 1% in, in that race, and takes the oath of office in January. And in April, with the legislative session still ongoing through the end of the month, Theodore Roosevelt uh, accepts one of the uh, many invitations for him to speak. He does so to the Hamilton Society in Chicago on April 10th, 1899, uh, 121 years ago today. I'd like to read The Strenuous Life. I'd like to do so uh, without much further comment, but just a, a couple of notes. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt quotes uh, a line of poetry in his speech. He does so without attribution. He quotes the line, stern men with empires in their brains. Uh, his audience would have known uh, the work of James Russell Lowell, uh, the Harvard-educated uh, fireside poet uh, who would uh, uh, teach at Harvard on through uh, 1877, uh, through Theodore Roosevelt's freshman year, at Harvard, certainly known to one another. Uh, James Russell Lowe wrote the Bigelow Papers uh, decades before bringing him great fame, an editor of the uh, 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 one of the, the New York Papers as well, appointed to uh, be our ambassador to Spain and to the court of St. James uh, at the United Kingdom. And so uh, James Russell Lowe quoted also some of the uh, references to policy are relative to those that come as a result of the Spanish-American War, the defeat of Spain, the acquisitions of responsibilities and duties in the Philippines, Cuba, and uh, Guam and Puerto Rico. Those are mentioned here, and, and we can discuss those at some future time. But uh, because the speech is so, uh, I think, very important to uh, get to know Theodore Roosevelt better, uh, let's uh, let's begin. And I hope, uh, again, you'll be patient with me and forgiving. I. I do want to give this uh, a, a, a good delivery in the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt. Gentlemen, in speaking to you, men of the greatest city of the West, men of the state which gave to the country Lincoln and Grant, 
men who preeminently and distinctly embody all that is most American in the American character. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes not to the man who desires more easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. A life of ignoble ease, a life of that peace which springs merely from the lack of either desire or power to strive after great things, is as little worthy of a nation as of an individual. I ask only that what every self-respecting American demands from himself and from his sons shall be demanded of the American nation as a whole. Who among you would teach your boys that ease, that peace, is to be the first consideration in their eyes, to be the ultimate goal after which they strive. You men of Chicago have made this great city. You men of Illinois have done your share and more than your share in making America great because you neither preach nor practice such a doctrine. You work yourselves and you bring up your sons to work. If you are rich and are worth your salt, you will teach your sons that though they may have leisure, it is not to be spent in idleness. For wisely used leisure merely means that those who possess it, being free from the necessity of working for their livelihood, are all the more bound to carry on some kind of non-remunerative work in science, in letters, in art, in exploration, in historical research work of the type we most need in this country, the successful carrying out of which reflects most honor upon the nation. We do not admire the man of timid peace. We admire the man who embodies victorious effort, the man who never wrongs his neighbors, who is prompt to help a friend, but who has those virile qualities necessary to win in the stern strife of actual life. It is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. In this life, we get nothing save by effort. Freedom from effort in the present merely means that there has been stored up effort in the past. A man can be freed from the necessity of work only by the fact that he or his fathers before him have worked to good purpose. If the freedom thus purchased is used aright, and the man still does actual work, though of a different kind, whether as a writer or a general, whether in the field of politics or in the field of exploration and adventure, he shows he deserves his good fortune. But if he treats this period of freedom from the need of actual labor as a period not of preparation, but of mere enjoyment, even though perhaps not of vicious enjoyment, he shows that he is simply a cumberer of the earth's service, surface, and he surely unfits himself to hold his own with his fellows, if the need to do so should again rise. A mere life of ease is not in the end a very satisfactory life, and above all it is a life which ultimately unfits those who follow it 
for serious work in the world. As it is with the individual, so it is with the nation. It is a base untruth to say that happy is the nation that has no history. Thrice happy is the nation that has a glorious history. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who know neither enjoy nor suffer much, because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. If in 1861 the men who loved the Union had believed that peace was the end of all things, and war and strife the worst of all things, and had acted up to their belief, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives, we would have saved hundreds of millions of dollars. Moreover, besides saving all the blood and treasure we then lavished, we would have prevented the heartbreak of many women, the dissolution of many homes, we would have spared the country those months of gloom and shame when it seemed as if our armies marched only to defeat. We could have avoided all this suffering simply by shrinking from strife. And if we had thus avoided it, we would have shown that we were weaklings and that we were unfit to stand among the great nations of the earth. Thank God for the iron in the blood of our fathers, the men who upheld the wisdom of Lincoln and bore sword or rifle in the armies of Grant. Let us, the children of the men who proved themselves equal to the mighty days, let us, the children of the men who carried the great civil war to a triumphant conclusion, praise the God of our fathers that the ignoble counsels of peace were rejected, that the suffering and loss, the blackness of sorrow and despair were unflinchingly faced, and the years of strife endured, for in the end the slave was freed, the Union restored, and the mighty American Republic placed once more as a helmeted queen among the nations. We of this generation do not have to face such a task as that our fathers faced, but we have our tasks, and woe to us if we fail to perform them. We cannot, if we would, play the part of China and be content to rot by riches in ignoble ease within our borders, taking no interest in what goes on beyond them, sunk in a scrambling commercialism, heedless of the higher life, the life of aspiration, toil, risk, busying ourselves only with the wants of our bodies for the day, until suddenly we should find beyond a shadow of question what China has already found, that in this world, the nation that has trained itself to a career of unwarlike and isolated ease is bound in the end to go down before other nations, which have not lost the manly and adventurous qualities. If we are to be a really great people, we must strive in good faith to play a great part in the world. We cannot avoid meeting great issues. All that we can determine for ourselves is whether we shall meet them well or ill. Last year, we could not help being brought face to face with the problem of war with Spain. All we could decide was whether we should shrink like cowards from the contest or enter into it as beseemed a brave and high-spirited people. And once in, whether uh, failure or success should crown our banners. 
So it is now. We cannot avoid the responsibilities that confront us in Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. All we can decide is whether we shall meet them in a way that will redound to the national credit or whether we shall make our dealings with these new problems a dark and shameful page in our history. To refuse to deal with them at all merely amounts to dealing with them badly. We have a given problem to solve. If we undertake the solution, there is, of course, always danger that we may not solve it aright. But to refuse to undertake the solution simply renders it certain that we cannot possibly solve it aright. The timid man, the lazy man, the man who distrusts his country, the over-civilized man who has lost the great fighting, masterful virtues, the ignorant man and the man of dull mind whose soul is incapable of feeling the mighty lift that thrills stern men with empires in their brains. All these, of course, shrink from seeing the nation undertake its duties, shrink from seeing us build a navy, an army adequate to our needs, shrink from seeing us do our share of the world's work by bringing order out of chaos in the great fair tropic islands from which the valor of our soldiers and sailors has driven the Spanish flag. These are the men who fear the strenuous life, who fear the only national life which is really worth leading. They believe in that cloistered life which saps the hardy virtues in a nation as it saps them in the individual, or else they are wedded to that base spirit of gain and greed which recognizes in commercialism the be-all and end-all of national life. Instead of realizing that, though an indispensable element, it is after all but one of the many elements that go to make up true national greatness. No country can long endure if its foundations are not laid deep in the material prosperity which comes from thrift, from business energy and enterprise, from hard, unsparing effort in the fields of industrial activity. But neither was any nation ever yet truly great if it relied upon material prosperity alone. All honor must be paid to the architects of our material prosperity, to the great captains of industry who have built our factories and our railroads, to the strong men who toil for wealth with brain or hand, for great is the debt of the nation to those and their kind. But our debt is yet greater to the men whose highest type is to be found in a statesman like Lincoln, a soldier like Grant. They showed by their lives that they recognized the law of work, the law of strife. They toiled to win a competence for themselves and those dependent upon them. But they recognized that there were yet other and even loftier duties, duties to the nation and duties to the race. We cannot sit huddled within our own borders and avow ourselves merely an assemblage of well-to-do hucksters who care nothing for what happens beyond. Such a policy would defeat even its own ends. For as the nations grow to have ever wider and wider interests and are brought into closer and closer contact, if we are to hold our own in the struggle for naval and commercial supremacy, 
We must build up our power without our own borders. We must build the Isthmian Canal, and we must grasp the points of vantage which will enable us to have our say in deciding the destiny of the oceans of the East and the West. So much for the commercial side. Uh, from the standpoint of international honor, the argument is even stronger. The guns that thundered off Manila and Santiago left us echoes of glory, but they also left us a legacy of duty. If we drove out a medieval tyranny only to make room for savage anarchy, we had better not have begun the task at all. It is worse than idle to say that we have no duty to perform and can leave to their fates the islands we have conquered. Such a course would be the course of infamy. It would be followed at once by utter chaos in the wretched islands themselves. Some stronger, manlier power would have to step in and do the work. We would have shown ourselves weaklings, unable to carry to successful completion the labors that great and high-spirited nations are eager to undertake. The work must be done. We cannot escape our responsibility, and if we are worth our salt, we shall be glad of the chance to do the work, glad of the chance to show ourselves equal to one of the great tasks set modern civilization. But let us not deceive ourselves as to the importance of the task. Let us not be misled by vainglory into underestimating the strain it will put on our powers. Above all, let us, as we value our own self-respect, face the responsibilities with proper seriousness courage and high resolve. We must demand the highest order of integrity and ability in our public men who are to grapple with those new problems. We must hold to a rigid accountability those public servants who show unfaithfulness to the interests of the nation or inability to rise to the high level of the new demands upon our strength and our resources. Of course, we must remember not to judge any public servant by any one act, and especially should be, uh, we beware of attacking the men who are merely the occasions and not the causes of disaster. Let me illustrate what I mean by the army and the navy. If 20 years ago we had gone to war, we should have found the navy as absolutely unprepared as the army. At the time, our ships could not have encountered with success the fleets of Spain any more than nowadays we can put untrained soldiers, no matter how brave, who are armed with archaic black powder weapons against well-drilled regulars armed with the highest type of modern repeating rifle. But in the early 80s, the attention of the nation became directed to our naval needs. Congress most wisely made a series of appropriations to build up a new navy, and under a succession of able and patriotic secretaries, of both political parties, the Navy was gradually built up until its material became equal to its splendid personnel, with the result that last summer it leapt to its proper place as one of the most brilliant and formidable fighting navies in the entire world. We rightly pay all honor to the men controlling the Navy at the time it won these great deeds, honor to Secretary Long and Admiral Dewey to the captains who handled the ships in action, to the daring lieutenants who braved death in the smaller craft, and to the heads of bureaus at Washington who saw that the ships were so commanded, so armed, so equipped, 
so well engined as to ensure the best results. But let us also keep ever in mind that all of this would not have availed if it had not been for the wisdom of the men who during the preceding 15 years had built up the Navy. Keep in mind the secretaries of the Navy during those years. Keep in mind the senators and congressmen who by their votes gave the money necessary to build and to armor the ships, to construct the great guns and to train the crews. Remember also those who actually did build the ships, the armor and the guns. And remember the admirals and captains who handled battleships, cruisers and torpedo boats on the high seas, alone and in squadrons, developing the seamanship, the gunnery and the power of acting together which their successors utilized so gloriously at Manila, Manila and off Santiago. And gentlemen, remember the converse too. Remember that justice has two sides. Be just to those who built up the Navy. And for the sake of the future of the country, keep in mind those who opposed its building up. Read the congressional record. Find out the senators and congressmen who opposed the grants for building the new ships, who opposed the purchase of armor without which the ships were worthless, who opposed any adequate maintenance for the Navy Department and strove to cut down the number of men necessary to man our fleets. The men who did these things were one and all working to bring disaster on the country. They have no share in the glory of Manila and the honor of Santiago. They have no cause to feel proud of the valor of our sea captains of the renown of our flag. Their motives may or may not have been good, but their acts were heavily fraught with evil. They did ill for the national honor, and we won in spite of their sinister opposition. Now, apply all this to our public men of today. Our army has never been built up as it should be built up. I shall not discuss with an audience like this the puerile suggestion that a nation of 70 millions of free men is in danger of losing its liberties from the existence of an army of 100,000 men, three-fourths of whom will be employed in certain foreign lands, in certain coast fortresses, and on Indian reservations. No man of good sense and stout heart can take such a proposition seriously. If we are such weaklings as the proposition implies, then we are unworthy of freedom in any event. To no body of men in the United States is the country so much indebted as to the splendid officers and enlisted men of the regular army and navy. There is no body from which the country has less to fear, none of which it should be prouder, or which it should be more anxious to upbuild. Our army needs complete reorganization, not merely enlarging, and the reorganization can only come as the result of legislation a proper general staff should be established, and the positions of ordnance, commissary, and quartermaster officers should be filled by detail from the line. Above all, the army must be given the chance to exercise in large bodies. Never again should we see, as we saw in the Spanish War, major generals in command of divisions who had never before commanded three companies together in the field. Yet incredible to relate the recent Congress has showed a queer inability to learn some of the lessons of the war. There were large bodies of men in both branches who opposed the declaration of war. 
who oppose the ratification of peace, who oppose the upbuilding of the army, and who even oppose the purchase of armor at a reasonable price for the battleships and cruisers, thereby putting an absolute stop to the building of any new fighting ships for the Navy. If during the years to come, any disaster should befall our arms, afloat or ashore, and thereby any shame come to the United States, remember that the blame will lie upon the men whose names appear upon the roll calls of Congress on the wrong side of these great questions. On them will lie the burden of any loss of our soldiers and sailors, of any dishonor to the flag, and upon you and the people of this country will lie the blame if you do not repudiate in an unmistakable way what these men have done. The blame will not rest upon the untrained commander of untried troops, upon the civil officers of a department the organization of which has been left utterly inadequate, or upon the admiral with insufficient number of ships, but upon the public men who have so lamentably failed in forethought as to refuse to remedy these evils long in advance, and upon the nation that stands behind those public men. So at the present hour, no small share of the responsibility for the blood shed in the Philippines, the blood of our brothers and the blood of their wild and ignorant foes lies at the thresholds of those who so long delayed the adoption of the Treaty of Peace and of those who by their worst and foolish words deliberately invited a savage people to plunge into a war fraught with sure disaster for them. A war too in which our own brave men who follow the flag must pay with their blood for the silly, mock humanitarianism of the prattlers who sit at home in peace. The army and the navy are the sword and the shield which this nation must carry if she is to do her duty among the nations of the earth, if she is not to stand merely as the China of the Western Hemisphere. Our proper conduct toward the tropic islands we have wrested from Spain is merely the form which our duty has taken at the moment of course, we are bound to handle the affairs of our own household well. We must see that there is civic honesty, civic cleanliness, civic good sense in our home administration of city, state, and nation. We must strive for honesty in office, for honesty towards the creditors of the nation and of the individual, for the widest freedom of individual initiative where possible, and for the wisest control of individual initiative where it is hostile to the welfare of the many. But because we set our own household in order, we are not thereby excused from playing our part in the great affairs of the world. A man's first duty is to his own home, but he is not thereby excused from doing his duty to the state. For if he fails in this second duty, it is under the penalty of ceasing to be a free man. In the same way, while a nation's first duty is within its own borders, it is not thereby absolved from facing its duties in the world as a whole. And if it refuses to do so, it merely forfeits its right to struggle for a place among the peoples that shape the destiny of mankind. In the West Indies and the Philippines alike, we are confronted by most difficult problems. It is cowardly to shrink from solving them in the proper way, for solved they must be if not by us, then by some stronger and more manful race. If we are too weak, too selfish, or too foolish to solve them, some bolder and abler people must undertake the solution. Personally, I 
am far too firm a believer in the greatness of my country and the power of my countrymen to admit for one moment that we shall ever be driven to the ignoble alternative. The problems are different for the different islands. Puerto Rico is not large enough to stand alone. We must govern it wisely and well, primarily in the interest of its own people. Cuba is, in my judgment, entitled ultimately to settle for itself, whether it shall be an independent state or an integral portion of the mightiest of republics. But until order and stability, stable liberty are secured, we must remain in the island to ensure them, and infinite tact, judgment, and moderation and courage must be shown by our military and civil representatives in keeping the island pacified, in relentlessly stamping out brigandage, in promoting all alike, and yet in showing proper recognition to the men who have fought for Cuban liberty. The Philippines offer a yet graver problem. Their population includes half-caste and native Christians, warlike Muslims and wild pagans. Many of their people are utterly unfit for self-government and show no signs of becoming fit. Others may in time become fit, but at present can only take part in self-government under a wise supervision at once firm and beneficent. We have driven Spanish tyranny from the islands. If we now let it be replaced by savage anarchy, our work has been for harm and not for good. I have scant patience with those who fear to undertake the task of governing the Philippines and who openly avow that they do fear to undertake it or that they shrink from it because of the expense and trouble. But I have even scanter patience with those who make a pretense of humanitarianism to hide and cover their timidity, and who cant about liberty and the consent of the governed in order to excuse themselves for their unwillingness to play the part of men. Their doctrines, if carried out, would make it incumbent upon us to leave the Apaches of Arizona to work out their own salvation and to decline to interfere in a single Indian reservation. Their doctrines condemn your forefathers and mine for ever having settled in these United States. England's rule in India and Egypt has been of great benefit to England, for it has trained up generations of men accustomed to look at the larger and loftier side of public life. It has been of even greater benefit to India and Egypt. And finally, and most of all, it has advanced the cause of civilization. So if we do our duty aright in the Philippines, we will add to that national, that national renown, which is the highest and finest part of national life will greatly benefit the people of the Philippine Islands and above all we will play our part well in the great work of uplifting mankind but to do this work keep ever in mind that we must show in a very high degree the qualities of courage of honesty and of good judgment resistance must be stamped out the first and all-important work to be done is to establish the supremacy of our flag we must put down armed resistance before we can accomplish anything else. And there should be no parlaying, no faltering in dealing with our foe. As for those in our own country who encourage the foe, we can afford contemptuously to disregard them. But it must be remembered that their utterances are saved from being treasonable merely from the fact that they are despicable.
when once we have put down armed resistance, when once our rule is acknowledged, then an even more difficult task will begin. For then we must see to it that the islands are administered with absolute honesty and with good judgment. If we let the public service of the islands be turned into the prey of the spoils politician, we shall have begun to tread the path, path which Spain trod to her own destruction. We must send out there only good and able men, chosen for their fitness, not because of their partisan service. These men must not only administer impartial justice to the natives and serve their own government with honesty and fidelity, but must show the utmost tact and firmness, remembering that with such people as those with whom we are to deal, weakness is the greatest of crimes, and that next to weakness comes lack of consideration for their principles and prejudice, prejudices. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. The 20th century looms before us big with the fate of many nations. If we stand idly by, if we seek merely swollen, slothful ease and ignoble peace, if we shrink from the hard contests where men must win at hazard of their lives and at the risk of all they hold dear, then the bolder and stronger peoples will pass us by and will win for themselves the domination of the world. Let us therefore boldly face this, the life of strife, resolute to do our duty well and manfully, resolute to uphold righteousness by deed and by word, resolute to be both honest and brave, to serve high ideals, yet to use practical methods. Above all, let us not shrink from strife, moral or physical, within or without the nation, provided we are certain that the strife is justified. For it is only through strife, through hard and dangerous endeavor, that we shall ultimately win the goal of true national greatness. The Strenuous Life by Theodore Roosevelt, Governor of New York, given this day April 10th, 1899, in Chicago, Illinois. So glad you've visited Teddy Talks today. My thanks to everyone at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation who are so helpful in supporting this broadcast here and then also transferring it to both YouTube and Spotify if that's a, a way that you might prefer to listen to this as a podcast or see it on YouTube in another variety, I encourage you to do so there. Uh, share with your uh, friends and neighbors during the weeks ahead. Uh, so many of us still at a, a stay-at-home order uh, through perhaps uh, the end of April at the least. I hope you'll join us during these 26 days with the 26th president during the month of April. Very likely that the programs will continue in May, in which case... We uh, uh, wonderfully benefit from the fact that uh, May and June will both, uh, in remembering 1898, uh, bring us to San Antonio and Tampa and Cuba, and uh, in 1903, bring us on that great Western tour. Uh, in uh, 1903, President Roosevelt was this day camping and observing the wildlife in Yellowstone. Tomorrow, April 11th, brief remarks on that Saturday, Hope you all enjoy your uh, Passover and your Easter Sunday. Uh, but uh, tomorrow, April 11th, cameo uh, presentations uh, by Charles Evans Hughes. 
uh, born on April 11th, 1862, Republican governor of New York, a jurist, 1916 Republican candidate for the presidency against Wilson and that re-election phrase, he kept us out of war. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes would go on, uh, having been endorsed in that election in 1916 by Theodore Roosevelt, by the way, to be appointed to the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, we're also going to, uh, on tomorrow, April 11th, follow Theodore Roosevelt in 1899. Uh, he goes on to make a brief speech uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, but we'll also have, in addition to uh, Charles Evans Hughes, uh, from 1898, the declaration of war against Spain by Congress and President McKinley, and uh, also in 1899, the uh, end of the war, the treaty exchange uh, being done at the White House. 1916, the death of Richard Harding Davis, the journalist and war correspondent, war correspondent of whom Theodore Roosevelt writes in his book, The Rough Riders, because uh, Richard Harding Davis was uh, what today we might call an embedded journalist, a war correspondent who not only was at the front lines July 1st at Kettle Hill, but uh, famously had helped to spot some of the Spanish soldiers uh, with his field glasses. And, and Theodore Roosevelt writes about that, and we'll probably share that tomorrow. Thank you so very much. Godspeed, each and every one of you. Stay well. Stay safe. Stay home. God bless you and yours. And God bless the United States of America. We'll see you tomorrow on Teddy Talks.